We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. There's no place to be right now but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. They're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. People say, you know, Abby, are you concerned about an overreaction from the cops? Holy shit. You all right? It was until I saw that. Are the people ready to make opening arguments? My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument. I am going to be joined in just a minute by uh, Jeff Cohen uh, from um, Roots Action, uh, who's going to be talking to me about the uh, the election, and then by David Feldman, uh, who some of you know as a old lefty from way back, uh, and by Colette Shade, who uh, wrote a really good article uh, in the New Republic on uh, self-help hacks uh, at the end of the world, and finally by uh, Napoleon the Legend. Uh, the voice uh, voices you just heard uh, were uh, the actors in Aaron Sorkin's new Netflix movie, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, uh, which uh, which I just uh, re- um, which I just reviewed for uh, for Jacobin. You can check that out there. Uh, but basically, what I think about that movie is that it's a much better movie than it has any right to be. Uh, Sorkin is actually usually better when he's writing movies uh, than uh, than TV shows. Uh, but it absolutely reeks of the worst, most vapid possible kind of liberal worldview. Uh, the words that Sorkin puts in Abby Hoffman's mouth uh, in, uh, in his testimony at the end of the movie are, the institutions of our democracy are great. They just happen to be run by some terrible people right now. And, of course, that is liberalism in a nutshell. The system is fine. Uh, it's just that the people who happen to be in charge are bad people. So once we get rid of them and put in good people, we will be totally fine. Uh, and if you are watching or listening to the show, there's a very good chance that you don't need me to tell you. You already realize that this is a deeply flawed analysis. It's incredibly historically inaccurate uh, when Sorkin has put it in the mouths of radicals like Abby Hoffman. Uh, but it, it's also... Um, it's also just a bad way to view the world. It's one that will leave you very confused about a lot of what's happened in the last few decades. Uh, and it's particularly ridiculous when we're told that the good people, the people that if we, if we bring them in, all will be well, uh, are people like uh, Joe Biden. After all, uh, Biden uh, voted for the Iraq war. In fact, he didn't just vote for the Iraq war. He was one of the main voices pushing uh, for the invasion of Iraq on the Democratic side. He spent decades uh, acting more like a representative of the uh, credit card companies uh, than uh, representative of the state of Delaware and the U.S. Senate. Uh, he's a villain when it comes to mass incarceration. So I really, really get um, why lots and lots of people uh, who basically <laughs> agree with all of those all of my priors on this, you know, who to start out uh, seeing this stuff uh, much the same way uh, that, uh, that I do. Um, 
have uh, look at that and think, hey, as Bartleby says, I would rather not, right? You know, I uh, whether I live in uh, California, where everybody who's currently thinking about voting third party could convince three friends and Biden would still win, or whether I live in Michigan, which uh, went to um, went to Donald Trump last time by 0.23%, I am just not going to legitimize this, this farce uh, by voting for any of these people. But I think that that is importantly wrong. And I think it misses some important stuff, not just in terms of harm reduction, but in terms of strategy going forward for the left to the future. I'm joined now to uh, talk about this by uh, Jeff Cohen, who's a media critic and columnist. Uh, He's a retired journalism professor from Ithaca College. He founded the media watchdog group FAIR, uh, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, in 1986, uh, and co-founded the online activist group uh, RootsAction.org in uh, 2011. Cohen has produced uh, documentary movies, including The Corporate Coup d'Etat and All Governments Lie. He's the author of Cable News Confidential, My Misadventures in Corporate Media, and he's been a TV commentator at CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC, and was the senior producer of MSNBC's Phil Donahue uh, primetime show until it was terminated three weeks before the uh, the Iraq invasion. So, welcome, Jeff. Great to be with you. So, uh, I-, I want you to to tell me a little bit about um, about before we kind of get into the the why of it, right? Like why you you know you have a different perspective on some of the stuff than, than some of the people I was just talking about do. Uh, what um, uh, Roots Action uh, has uh, has has been doing with regards to all of this, and particularly, uh, I, I guess something under the umbrella of Roots Action, which is an organization called Vote Trump Out. Yeah. Um. Roots Action is an independent online force. We have over a million people. Um, Norman Solomon and I started Roots Action. We were both Bernie delegates to the 2020 convention that did not happen. We both voted down the party platform. If there had been a real convention, that would have been a big news story. The Democratic leadership suppressed it. More than one out of, about roughly one out of four delegates voted against the party platform because it didn't include Medicare for all and, another, and some other issues. That's unprecedented. So the Vote Trump Out uh, campaign, votetrumpout.org or hashtag Vote Trump Out, it's an effort by those of us on the left who have a critique of corporate capitalism, have a critique of Biden and the corporate Democratic leadership. We were spurred on. It was Norman Solomon, me, uh, Noam Chomsky, Daniel Ellsberg, and Marjorie Cohn of the National Lawyers Guild. We said, despite our savage criticisms of Biden, he's the only tool we have to eject Trump. So we launched this massive campaign at social media with all these left-wing luminaries, Barbara Ehrenreich, Medea Benjamin, Chomsky, you name it. Uh, And we're aiming at swing state voters, what we call swing voters on the left, who live in swing states. And we're saying you have to vote for Biden as sort of a, he's our tool to get Trump out. And then we challenge Biden from day one. 
And we believe, it's our analysis, we worked heavily in the Bernie campaign and other uh, campaigns, that the left is better organized, better funded, better networked, re has real momentum, even has allies inside Congress like we never had before. The squad is bigger than ever. The only thing that can break that left momentum is Trump getting four more years. So despite, I agree completely with what you said about Biden, he's been a tool of the credit card companies, the banks, uh, 48 years, and you can't really point to anything progressive he's ever done. And, uh, and yet he is our tool to get Trump out. In many ways, tool, you know, has many meanings. He's a corporate tool, and unfortunately, he's the only tool the left has to get rid of Trump, and then we start fighting the corporate centrists and the corporate leadership of the Democratic Party. Yeah, so I, I can imagine somebody watching this uh, on, on YouTube or listening to us, the podcast, and, and hearing all that, right, and saying, okay, well, you know, I get why you, you hate Trump. I, I, I get why you want to, uh, you know, fight with uh, the sort of corporate, you know, centrism that Biden represents. Uh, but why is it that we're, that, you know, you want to take sides between these two things in, in, in the first place, right? And, and I think that there might be, um, you know, a few answers to that, but, uh, but I, I think it might not be obvious to everybody at first. I think in particular it might not be obvious because oftentimes I think when we hear people making this case, you know, we hear people saying things that might be either um, implausibly apocalyptic or else like implausibly optimistic, right? So like the, the, the implausibly apocalyptic stuff would be like uh, that if, you know, if Trump wins, I don't know, you know, this is going to go all the way to fascism. We'll all be in concentration camps next year or something. I don't think that's true. The, uh, the implausibly optimistic stuff might be uh, when there's a certain kind of progressives for Biden-y kind of way of making this case where you say, well, he's flawed, he's imperfect. But, right, and then you, you basically assume that everything that's buried on some campaign website there is, is stuff that Biden is actually going to do. And and I don't think uh, I don't think you're making either of those assumptions. Right. Right? You know, so I I like the way you've laid that out because vote Trump out and all of our endorsers. Uh, we don't take the uh, crazily optimistic view or the crazily ap apocalyptic. We're looking at things how they are, and um, clearly, if Trump wins another four years. Even though, and I can make the case in so many ways, the left is stronger than it's been, at least in my lifetime, and I'm 68 years old, that we are in a position, if Trump's in office, of just fighting defense. We're right. playing defense. He's immune to progressive pressure or protest. Biden, on the other hand, will know that the only way he got in, it certainly wasn't on his own merit, is because this growing left and most Democrats overwhelmingly, even in Mississippi, they're for Medicare for all. They're for the Bernie Sanders or social democratic agenda. He knows he didn't get in on his own merits and we're going to be fighting him from day one. So the issue is for those uh, left wing voters you're talking about is which opponent would you rather have in the White House? It's that simple. Yeah. If, if you're part of the yeah. left, who do you want to be battling? Do you want to be battling Biden or Trump? I want to be battling Biden. And I, and you know, Chomsky's been very good on this. And, you know, I've known him for decades. 
you know, he hears people say, I, I have a moral right. I will never vote for that warmonger. Yeah. I am, I, I would, you will never get me to vote for that corporatist. Yeah. And, and Chomsky argues that that's not a moral position. A moral position isn't what makes me feel good or what makes me feel pure, or what makes me feel superior. The moral decision-making is what helps other people, especially the most vulnerable, vulnerable people around me. So the moral decision, if you live in a swing state, I don't care what you do in right. California, New York, vote third party, that's fine by me. But if you live in a swing state, and I wish I did, I grew yeah. up in Michigan, I wish I was still there. I've been organizing in Michigan all of my left-wing friends are voting for Biden, and they're trying to get all of their left-wing friends to vote for Biden so it doesn't happen again. That's, yes. the, that's the point. The moral decision, I believe, if you live in a swing state, is eject Trump, and then we can battle Biden. Yeah, so, so let's, let's talk about why you think that that's the, uh, that's the moral, moral position, right? You know, like, I, I think... Um, I mean, I, I agree that, that I, I think sort of thinking of these things like just purely like as an expression of, of like uh, values, right? You know, that's like I, I, I hate this person for good reason, right? I hate that person for good reason. So I'm, I'm going to express my hatred, I, I think, is really the instinct of a version of the left that's, that's, been, um, that's been out of power for so long, you know, uh, and in so many ways, right? You know, that, that it starts to think of politics purely as a matter of kind of exhibiting commitment rather than trying to, to change anything. Right. Well, and, personal self-expression. Yeah. Yeah. Like no, politics for, it's personal self-expression rather than how do we transform the society into something just. Right. And, and of course, like you said, you know, uh, like a, a warmongering neoliberal, you know, like, like, like Biden right, is certainly not going to, uh, be on the side of that transformation, but there are still reasons why we might vastly prefer to fight with that enemy than the enemy that, that we've got, right? So, so I just, like, in, in the last few minutes we got here, I, I just want to run through a couple of those. Um, so, uh, so one that I think should, should matter a lot uh, to, uh, to the left uh, is about organized labor, that, uh, uh, that of course, you know, the question is not, you know, is, is Biden, you know, a, uh, you know, friend of the working class or anything like that? Clearly not. Right. But, uh, uh, but uh, he, he is a Democrat. And I think you can say that the Democratic Party institutionally just pursues a different strategy there than the Republican Party does that uh, even though they, they might do things like sign trade deals that, you know, that really undermine the bargaining power of, you know, certain industrial unions and things like that. Uh, you're not going to get Biden doing just as you didn't get Obama doing just as you didn't get Bill Clinton doing. You're not going to get Biden appointing people to the national labor relations board and the courts whose entire mission in life, what gets them up in the morning is trying to stamp out what's left of collective bargaining in the United States. And you really have had that with Trump. Like if, if you, if you look at the, uh, the last few years of, uh, of NLRB and court decisions, they have, overturned Obama era and previous precedents over and over and over again, always to make it harder to organize unions, always to make it harder uh, to negotiate for better paying conditions, you know, and always harder to recruit new members. Uh, and I, I think that if you, if you take for granted, yes, 
the Democrats will not save us. We need to save ourselves. Well, a big part of how we save ourselves is through labor organizing. And with Trump in office, that's just vastly more difficult. Yeah. I mean, I mean, who's the labor secretary? It's Antonin Scalia's son. And uh, with Biden, there's talk that Bernie might be the labor secretary. Frankly, I'd prefer him in the Senate. But Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I would be very surprised if, if, if Biden did that. Right. But, but I, I think that he's certainly not going to, uh, it's certainly not going to be anybody, uh, anybody like like Antonin Scalia's right. son. It'll be some. It'll probably be some mediocre Democrat. And the difference between some mediocre Democrat and a fanatical union buster actually does matter quite a bit here. It sure does. I mean, you brought up a key issue for those of us who are socialists, which is working class organizing. But another issue is anti-racism. I mean, what's the difference on uh, Muslims? And you know, look what Trump has whipped up. Uh, what about immigrants and undocumented workers? Uh, so you can go from that. That's why I say the moral, if you live in a swing state and you have the opportunity to be part of a broad movement, including a broad left movement to eject Trump, but you think it's your moral duty for self-expression to either write in Bernie or write in Trotsky or write in Karl Marx or, or don't vote at all or vote. Uh, ineffectually vote third party in the swing state. I'm arguing that your moral decision is let's fight, let's make a decision in the voting booth or with our ballot that helps the working class, helps immigrants, uh, helps people of color, helps the most vulnerable, and then let's go fight the corporate Democrats because they're going to be in power because we help put them in power. And now yeah. we got to fight them. Yeah. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Look, I, I live in Michigan. I, I already sent in my mail-in ballot. Uh, and, and let me tell you what, it, it took me about five minutes. That's not the beginning and end of, of my political involvement. Well, have you seen, I mean, part of Vote Trump Out and VoteTrumpOut.org, we've circulated 12 different videos. And they're all really radical videos. And, and uh, the newest one is, is Chomsky saying, look, how you vote, what you do with those five minutes, that's not political activism. That's what the mainstream media and the corporatists want you to think it is. Oh, your vote, you get to, you you know, on CNN, express yourself. This is your time to, well, no. Our argument at Vote Trump Out and Roots Action is activism and politics is what you do every day of the year. But on, on this particular period of time, we have to vote Trump out and then let's fight the corporatists of the center who are easier to fight than the far right wing. And, and I think, and I think that's, the, that's the key point, right? Like it's, it's, it's not about, I mean, like we're certain, like there are people who have this perspective, of course, right? But it's obviously not our perspective that, uh, that everything that's bad is, is because of Trump. There are no pre-existing problems. We just get rid of Trump and then, you know, we go back to brunch. Uh, the, uh, the, you know, like, like our, our perspective is that this is a, a long-term struggle to, to, uh, uh, to undo all the things that, that got us Trump in the first place, frankly. Right. Yeah, and that's the, that's the key because um, I mean, I think back to 2008, uh, and uh, people elected Obama, first uh, uh, African-American president. He'd run anti-war compared to Hillary. Um, and people went to sleep. And the left, it's not going to happen. There's no honeymoon for Biden. 
And there's already these coalitions that we've been a part of with Bernie Delegates Network and all these, all these coalitions that have been built, uh, beginning with Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter. There's no honeymoon for Biden. And everyone knows it, and we're already planning. I mean, if it wasn't for COVID, we'd be organizing a demonstration on Inauguration Day against Biden. So, I mean, the left is on the move. The left is growing. The left is strong. You want to stop that momentum? Stay home or don't don't bother ejecting Trump. That's what will stop our momentum. Yeah, yeah. So, so right, because so, so there are two issues, right? One is that if you do see this as a long-term struggle, the terrain on which that struggle is fought is going to be different, right? Yep. Depending on, I mean, those things, it's not very sexy, but those National Labor Relations Board rulings yep. actually do matter a lot for working class organizing, for example. Uh, and then, um, and then the, uh, the other, you know, the other issue is that um, how we see like what, what happens um you know, what happens, you know, going forward, right? Like, I, I think that, uh, I think that some people do this thing where they'll, they'll kind of merge together the issue of, you know, what liberals are doing, right? You know, people who, who might, you know, indeed go back to sleep, right? You know, if, if, uh, if Biden uh, is, uh, is, is elected with, uh, with what the left is doing, when that's actually a more alive distinction now than it, than it's it's certainly been in my lifetime you know, before right that uh, yeah. that you know we, we have we have three uh, actually now four right you know people who have had some level of affiliation with the uh, with the Democratic Socialists of America who are in Congress now uh, and and so I, I think that that uh, that distinction isn't going anywhere but what I would actually in in fact I think that if you want to snuff out that energy. I think the best way to do that would be to give Trump a second term because if you, you know, I, what the question that I really urge a lot of people to think about is why did we get Biden in the first place, right? Like why, why, is, why is Biden the nominee? Why isn't Bernie Sanders the nominee? And there, there isn't just one answer to that, of course, but a big part of the, of the answer, you know, we know it's not because Democratic primary voters preferred uh, Biden's policies. All of, the, yeah. all of the polls in all the states that Biden won on, on Super Tuesday consistently showed, you know, majorities of Democrats supporting things like Medicare for all. So it's not that, right? It's that after four years of Trump, people who voted Democratic primaries were desperate to eject him. And they thought that, you know, that that a that a safe centrist like 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 Biden would be the best bet for doing that. Obviously, I think they're wrong. I, I think that I think that if if COVID and, and the downturn hadn't happened, I think Biden might very well have lost. But they have. Uh, but uh, if that already was the case in 2020, then by the time we got to 2024, if Trump served a second term, uh, I can't imagine how much stronger that longing would have been. How much more Democratic voters would be willing to settle, you know, for just about anything in the primary if they thought uh, that it would uh, that it would regain them the White House. Uh, so, so I, I think that the the left is already in a weaker position than it would have been in some ways, you know, uh, because because Trump has been president for the last four years and would be in a much weaker position if Trump was president yeah, for eight I, years. I like the arguments you're making. I mean, look, we're on the left. When I was young, we fought the Cold War liberals, you know, because they were prosecuting the Vietnam War, and the left has been fighting the corporate liberals of today. And when I hear uh, 
like third party, you know, they want to vote third party in Michigan. They make this argument that, oh, you, you're, you're merging the left with the liberals. The reality is if Trump wins another four years, we're all going to be joining them and fighting defensive battles to maintain civil liberties that, you know, the way that we want to open up this battle between the corporatists in the center and the left is get Biden in there and we'll have a, a strong, it's not just the few that are with DSA. There's a lot that we're in, uh, that are allied with DSA and uh, that are going into Congress. Uh, and a lot of new, I mean, Cory Bush from St. Louis, Black Lives Matter activists. Uh, I've got here in the Bronx, uh, you know, Jamal Bowman. I mean, it's really an exciting thing. The left is strong in the streets. We're left, we're strong in elections. And we want to keep that momentum going. And we want to be able to challenge the corporate centrist to show the distinctions between the left and the corporatists. And you can't do that if all we're doing the next four years is fighting Trump to save basic democratic norms. We'll be on, we'll be backpedaling and we'll be closer to the liberals than ever in joining them and trying to save certain things. So I want to open up this, this battle and, and the corporate tool that we're using or tools are Biden Harris. Uh, so I say, and people should go to our website. You'll see we are not liberals. Go to votetrumpout.org and you'll see what we stand for, or rootsaction.org, the group Norman Solomon and I founded. Why did we found Nor Roots Action? All of these big online groups move on. They wouldn't criticize Obama. That's why we started Roots Action in 2011. And, and our idea was whether a Democrat or Republican is in power, there's got to be an online force that stands up for peace and justice and whistleblowers and labor. And we, that's why we started. We got tired of writing articles critical of Move On in 2009-10, and we started our own. And it's a principled left group that's got now over a million people strong. So I, I encourage anyone who's still on the fence Go to votetrumpout.org and you'll see all these left-wing luminaries pleading with you if you live in a swing state uh, to, uh, to vote for Biden. And then let's go on and fight Biden. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks, Ben. Bye-bye. All right. For a different perspective, I am now joined uh, by, uh, by David Feldman, uh, who's the uh, the host of uh, the David Feldman Show, co-host of the uh, Ralph Nader Radio Hour, uh, has uh, been nominated for uh, for 22 Emmys and won a few, written for Bill Maher, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, uh, and most importantly, I, I now want as I you know as I understand it is uh, is now a Trump supporter. Well, I want to tell you how I got there. Okay. Because right. I agree with everything Jeff is saying, uh, but you know he's a little too rigid. You know, one of the one of the things watching that clip from the Chicago Seven is everybody evolved. Rennie Davis evolved. He became a a bit to the right. Jerry Rubin, before he got hit by a car, was more conservative. You have to evolve. And I'm a Bernie bro from way back, from way back. Before you were born, I supported Bernie. Oh. And uh, I and I have to say, 
once Obama put the fingers on the scale for Joe, I like Joe Biden. You know, I agree with everything Jeff was saying. I like Joe Biden. In fact, I like Joe Biden more than I like Bernie. And I'm a Bernie bro. But I think Joe, I was wrong about Joe. I was wrong. Uh, I watched him in the debate. He, he, he told us everything I wanted to hear. He, he told me climate change is an existential threat to our planet. And I like his plan. I do. I like his plan. He's going to keep fracking. He's pro-fracking. And that's smart because he's doing jujitsu. Did you ever study martial arts? I I sure didn't, no. Okay. He's doing martial arts, jujitsu with climate change. If climate change is happening quickly, you counter that energy by going slowly. I think that's great. I think that's smart. And I was wrong about Bernie. So I'm evolving, just like your previous guest. I always thought universal health care was a human right. Joe Biden has taught me that universal health insurance is a human right. Well, I like access to health insurance, I think. Yeah. Universal access to potentially getting your illnesses taken care of through an insurance company is a human right if you have enough money to pay for it as well as the surprise bills that flows off the tongue better than universal health care as a human right oh, yeah. so, so everything you're saying makes perfect sense uh but uh but I, i'm still confused about about how you're voting because from what you're describing it sounds like uh you're a uh, you're a biden bro now what's the uh well, so, so- I, i'm a I, you know <laughs> We vote. Our votes are secret. They're still secret in this country. So what I like about Biden that I now looking back really don't like about Bernie is that Biden reminds me that we're better than Republicans and that knowing we're better than Republicans is enough. That is how you fight fascists, by knowing you are better than they are. My fa- I'm older than you. My father fought the fascists. And the way we defeated Hitler, is we, we went high. And, and when you go low as Michelle Obama, who I think presidential material, I love the Obamas. They're fantastic. When they go low, you go high. And I thought Biden at the debate Thursday was great because he didn't go into the gutter. And that's what I'm worried about. More than climate change, more than providing health care to the millions of Americans who are dying because they don't have health care. More important than that is that we don't allow our party to, to go into the gutter because that's where they the Republicans live there. Don't give them that fight. So you have to play to a larger audience, Ben. Professor Ben, you have to play to history. And I don't want to look back. I don't want my grandparents or my grandkids to, to look back or my grandparents to look down mm-hmm. on us. But my grandparents are looking down on us. They're still alive. They just <laughs> are very condescending. I don't want our grandchildren to look back at this moment of time and say, we went into the gutter. Okay, so it sounds like you love Biden. So, so I don't love Biden. I'm evolving. Okay, and, and he's taught me that it's good enough to know that you have arrows in your quiver, 
and that you could use them, but you're a better person if you walk away and leave those arrows on the ground so the Republicans can pick them up and aim them at you. That way you haven't surrendered the moral high ground and you can sleep at night knowing that you didn't go into the gutter the way those Republicans do just to save a hundred million people from dying from COVID. No, sure. Like, like I I can definitely see why civility is more important than that. Civility Uh, is way more important. Okay. Okay. But, but, but I guess what, what, what confuses me now is it sounds like you're making a, a really powerful case for, for Biden that it's not. I I love Joe more now than I loved Bernie. And I'm a Bernie bro from way back, from, you know, way back, way back, from way back. But uh, Bernie is not a Democrat. That's, you know, he, he caucuses with the Democrats. Joe's a Democrat. And, you know, we believe in science. And, you know, and no, no, here's something no, that I don't like about Bernie. Looking back, he, he he brought something out in me that I'm ashamed about. Joe reminds us that we're better than the Republicans, right? Mm. So when you attack Trump, you're punching down. And 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 you know I'm a comedy writer, and you never punch down. We punch up, always punch up. Donald Trump, Mike Pence, these are sociopaths. They're sick. To attack them, you're you're punching down. And that's morally reprehensible. We're better than that. And that's why if Trump, this is this is very important to me. This is an existential crisis, Professor. The soul of our country is at stake. Democracy is at stake. November 3rd, that evening, if Donald Trump declares victory prematurely on election night, don't go into the gutter. Give it to him. He lives for the fight. He wants a fight. That's what he lives for. Walk away from it. Okay, so I think maybe now I finally understand because it it sounded like for, for the last few minutes... Uh, that you you've you know that like you're actually making a much stronger case for Biden than than Jeff made. You know he was making this you know narrow tactical argument about advancing the goals of the far left. But you you know you think that Biden is 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 great and he's doing exactly what he should be doing. He's threading the needle. He's, he's yeah, threading the needle. Yeah, it's yeah. that it's you know it's <laughs> I, tough. Yeah, I see that. Um, but but that I didn't understand because because my my under, my understanding had been that you you don't support Biden that you actually support uh, Donald Trump now. No 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 no. I'm saying if he declares victory, November third, walk away, walk, walk away from do the nothing. fight. Do nothing. Do nothing. I'm not going to tell you who I'm voting for. I'm a Bernie bro. You know that. My eyes well up when I look at the clips from the Chicago 7 movie. I mean, I'm a Bernie bro. I believe in everything Bernie believes in. But Joe was a smarter politician. You know, here's the mistake Bernie made. And I love Bernie. Anybody running for office can make promises he can't keep. Trump, Bernie, you know, I'm proud of Joe Biden. He's promising Nothing. That's how you win. No Medicare for all. No end to fracking. No 
end to the, the wars that are just going on and on and on. That's how you run for office, by being honest with the American people and saying nothing is going to fundamentally change if I'm elected. The American voter, look at how the, the American voter, look at, look at the condition of this country right now. They've had enough change with Trump. Look at look at the COVID-19. There's a pandemic, the economy, we're in a depression. And now Joe Biden's going to come in and say, I'm going to change everything. We've had enough change. We we want just things to stay the same right now. To stay, to stay the same as they are right now. We've had enough change under, why can't you people on the left see this? There's been enough change. What we need is somebody to come in and keep things the way they are. And that's why Joe Biden is going to win. Uh, no, that makes sense. I mean, if there's one thing that motivates people to vote, it's keeping things exactly the way they are. And, uh, and although with, it's with, martial arts, which you don't understand. Joe, middle-class Joe, yeah. is actually an agent of change. He's saying, if you don't want anything to change, vote for me. And I'll change things so we can go back to a time when nothing ever changed. He's going to take us back to Obama when nothing changed. He so he is an agent of change by changing nothing. Hmm. Is is he at least going to change things back to, to the way they were before? He's nothing is going to change and it will be imperceptible. Any change that does take place, we can relax. We can take our hands off the wheel and let Joe drive because we have a Democrat and we don't have to worry. That's what's so great about Obama. Yeah, there was change, but it was imperceptible. You didn't notice what was going on. Oh, no, sure, sure. That makes sense. So uh, I, I want imperceptible change. That's okay. what I'm looking for. Okay. Um, and I don't want to say things right now that I will regret. I don't want to antagonize the far right because I'm better than they are. And I'm not going to go into the gutter with them. They live for that stuff. Could, could we at least vote against them or would that be too much in the gutter? Well, you, you know, that is you're taunting them by voting against them. Well, I'm just saying, look, I'm not, you know. I'm not saying who I'm voting for. I, I, I love Joe Biden, but I'm not sure poking a stick at a fascist is the smartest thing to do. So maybe. If you kind of appease Trump and his, you know, all you have to do is make bullies happy and they calm down. These are bullies. And they're looking for a fight. If you don't give them a fight, you give them what they want. Eventually they they get sated and they stop. And that's why I like uh, Joe Biden, because I know on November 3rd, when Trump declares victory, yeah. even though he's, it looks like he lost, Joe's going to walk away for the good of the country. And I like that. And that will be good. This is what I like about Joe Biden. He, he and Kamala, Kamala, yeah. are, are, are they're both politicians. Joe Biden is a man of principles who will never allow his principles to get in the way of his principles. So I'm, uh, sorry, sorry, David. I, I don't think I understood this. That he won't allow his principles to get in the way of his principles. Yes, because he's a man of principle. Would, would and, he a man of principle stick to his principles? 
a man, if, if his principles are not to stick to his principles because they get in the way of his principles, then no, that makes Joe Biden a man of principles. And that's why I'm very optimistic. You know, we'll get him again in four years is what I'm saying. <laughs> We're going to get them in four years. Okay. Walk right. away. Okay. Walk away. And I'm a Bernie bro from way back. So, so I want everything Bernie yeah. wants. But, you know, not if it means, you know, gumming up the works. And that's why I like Pelosi and Schumer. You know, they're letting Amy Coney Barrett through. They could have done things to stop her. They could have impeached Bill Barr. They could have impeached Trump again. They could have demanded a, a quorum. But they don't. They don't want to go. That's what McConnell wants. McConnell wants the fight. Let them have a conservative Supreme Court. We're better than they are. Okay, so, We're better than the Republicans. So, so because, that should be good enough. Okay, so because you love the Democratic Party, and uh, which, which if, there's, if there are two things this show stands for, it's loving the Democratic Party and appeasing the far right. Uh, so because you love the Democratic Party and because you, you, you think the Democratic Party is so much better than the Republicans, uh, the, right, the right solution is to let the Republicans continue to govern the country for the next four years. No, 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 no. I, if you want to torture the Republicans, they live for the fight. Okay. Don't, so don't give them the fight. fight. If, you just, if you just let them have, let them have justice it. and let them steal the election – uh, then eventually they're going to say, as all bullies, as all fascists do, I've eaten too much. I'm stuffed. I'm done. Why can't you see that? Probably because I've never studied martial arts. It's martial arts. It's how we defeated Hitler. Did we defeat Hitler through martial arts? We did. <laughs> we let him. It's like we treated him like a child. We treat it and eventually a child has a temper tantrum and they 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 exhaust themselves and then it's over. That's how you defeat fascism. So so that's everybody vote, though. It's very important to vote. It's very important to vote. To but vote. It's also, it's and we'll get them four years from now. Okay. So Obviously, there's nothing we can do about. I mean, we're going to win. I know this is the great thing. We're going to win on November 3rd. Trump's going to declare victory. And then he and the Republican Party are going to spend the next four years haunted by the fact that this time they lost the Electoral College and the popular vote. OK, so you know that they're really upset right now. The Republicans are very upset that yeah. they lost the popular vote. Yeah, Trump, he is haunted. He has spent four years overcompensating for the fact that he lost the popular vote this time around, he's going to be beside himself that he lost the popular vote and the electoral college and that the Supreme Court had to step in at the last minute and give him the presidency. Would you want to spend the four years, the next four years, knowing that you don't deserve to be president? Give it to him. Give it to him. Let him suffer. I I feel sorry for him. He's sick. Okay. All right. My, my apologies. I, I think I misunderstood and misrepresented your position earlier. It's nothing so crude as, as that you, you support Trump or anything. I like hate that. the man. 
I, I, I'm a Bernie bro from way back. I despise Donald Trump. Right. No, no, that's fair. And I think the best way to torture him is let him let it be president for the next keep week. the Oval Office. And with with this miasma hanging over you, knowing that you lost and you don't belong there, that's got to be very upsetting. Oh, OK. OK. All right. All right. So so this is this, this is, is a way fault. of torturing the man, quite frankly. This is my fault. This is because I didn't study martial arts, so I don't understand. Well, it's books. You see, you, you're you're steeped in books. That's your problem. OK. All right. So, so, so I, I just want to make sure, sure I understand what my sensei is telling me here. That uh, that what you have to do, it's very important to vote for Trump, so that when, uh, which will, which will, because that will mean that Trump will have to go low and and steal the election, right? Uh, and then when Biden lets him do that, uh, then the shame of having done something so dishonorable. Uh, will really eat away at him during the next four years when he continues to. And he'll overcompensate. And by overcompensating, I mean, he'll pretty much destroy everything. And finally, because, you know, do you believe in accelerationism? To destroy everything? Yeah, I'm an accelerationist. You know about accelerationism? Please, please explain. Well, the the way, uh, what happened during the, the Weimar Republic? You remember when Hitler was running for chancellor? Heard of him, yes. Do you remember? Yep. Against von Poppen. <laughs> yes. And von Poppen was kind of like a Nazi, but he wasn't officially a Nazi. And a lot of people, and I get this, they said, you know what? Forget von Poppen. Give it to Hitler. Let things get so bad, it becomes settled law that the far right is is a disaster. And people learn from history. And I, I think... This is what's going to happen. America has a, a, a proud tradition of learning from our past mistakes. So, you know, after Watergate, we we passed meaningful campaign finance law that I, I haven't looked it up lately, but I think no, it's but, still working. I think that's and right. we learned from Vietnam. That's right. right. Remember the Powell Doctrine? Never get yourself into a war without a clear and present uh, idea of how you want to get out of that war. The Powell Doctrine, remember that? Yeah. The, well, we learned from history in the United okay, States. Okay. But yeah, I okay. want a big lesson. I want this country to have a big, you know, we've had a four-year lesson, but I think another four years will finally put the final nails in the coffin for the Republican Party. All right. So just like we learned from Vietnam, and that's why we've only yes. been- We've only been in Afghanistan for, for 19 years rather than 20. Well, that's different. Afghanistan is different. It's a different country. Oh, that, okay. No, we that, didn't go back to, v, you notice we're not fighting Vietnam now? Have you noticed that? That's, that's true. We learned from Vietnam. Don't fight a US war in Vietnam. Oh, okay. All right. So similarly, the lesson that we'll learn after, um, much like um, when, when Von Poppen made Hitler chancellor anyway, uh, when, when Biden lets Trump... Uh, steal the election, take office anyway. Uh, the lesson that we'll learn from four years is that Donald Trump as an individual should not be president anymore. We will learn, and, I, I, and I'll tell you right now, the Trump family, never again with the Trump family. But it's going to take another four years okay, okay. We, we for us to say never Trump, again with the Trump family. But then we'll know fam- not, to, not to elect Eric or Don Jr. Uh, right. Jared, is Jared okay? I. I, 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 none of them, 
None of them. I, I, I think the Lincoln Project guys, who I really like. Of course, yes. They're smart. They love America. Yes. And they're, uh, we should listen to them. We should listen to everybody in the Lincoln Project. And that's who the Democratic Party should become, because they know how to win. If we win, it's going to be because of the Lincoln Project. Uh, OK, so so the uh, so so the goal is that Trump can be president for four more years and then, we're giving it to him. We're giving it to him. And then what we'll learn from that is that is Trump never elect a a Trump again, never, never elect a Trump. And instead and it's settled law. It's just settled. Like everybody will agree. OK. No more. No more Trumps. You know, that's worth four more years to me. <laughs> Because otherwise, otherwise, if, if Trump isn't president for the next four years, uh, then we might get Eric or Don Jr. or somebody in 2020. Right, right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh, and then... Uh, and if we give him another four years, how old is Trump? His mid-70s, I think. So, like, another four years after that. I mean, you know, I, I hope the Secret Service doesn't knock on my door for saying this. Mm. I think giving Donald Trump four additional years after the the next four, I think the Secret Service would be coming. I, I, I think it's so dangerous for his health to, to, to say, I mean, I, I can't even articulate what so, I'm sa- thinking because I don't think he could survive so, so, so four years mind. after that. And I have to say it's vindictive, to be honest with you. I'm being... I hope the Secret Service doesn't. Oh, okay, okay. So, so you know where I'm going with this. Another so, so, four years so, after so, the next four years, forget so, it. So the strategy is that it's important that Trump be be um, installed back in power again because that way he'll work himself to death. Well, I don't want to say that, okay. but you 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 said that, and right. I don't want the Secret Service knocking on that, my door because the Secret Service loves Donald Trump. The Secret Service and their families they love. Donald Trump. Whenever you go to a Trump rally and you talk to the Secret Service people, their families love Donald Trump. They love how the Secret Service is dealing with COVID nineteen. They're going for you know the the Secret Service families are employing uh, herd immunity to defeat COVID nineteen. Thanks to Donald Trump, they love. Okay. Well, as long as the end result of this will be in 2028, we can have a Democrat in office and that Democrat. Oh, by by then, I mean, come on. Will be a Lincoln Project kind of. uh, Elliot Abrams would make a good. Okay. Because, you know, he's strong on defense, Elliot Abrams. I like Elliot Abrams. And you know that he he used to be a Democrat. You know that. You know. Okay, so so he used to be a Democrat, so uh, and he maybe Bill Crystal. I don't know how old Bill Crystal is, but you know Bill Crystal comes from a long line of Trotskyites. Why not let them take over the Democratic Party? Okay, all right, all right. Uh, yeah, no, that's fair enough. All right. Anyway, so, just let me just say this: okay. this is the most important election of our lifetime. Vote. As though your life depends upon it, because it does. It does. Vote. This is an existential crisis. Democracy, America's soul, is at stake. Vote.
Uh, okay, so um, so we're saving America's soul by having Biden let Trump steal the election, so that in four years we'll get him again in four years. But vote, <laughs> vote. It's important to vote. Okay, thank you for that. Thank you, <laughs> Professor. I love you, David. I love you too. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to say. It. I'm going to stay in character. I'm staying in character. David Feldman, watch, (laughs) listen to. As Michael Brooks used to end these, you'd go, I fucking hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever I did this guy, Michael would say, I fucking hate you. Uh, All right. Thank you. You were right. You were right. Good call. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, David. Bye. All right, that was um, David Feldman, who is the host of uh, the David Feldman Show, co-host of the uh, Ralph Nader Radio Hour, um, and and is, as he always loves to remind us, a old lefty from way, way, way back. All right, I'm now joined by Colette Shade, uh, who is uh, going to talk to me about a uh, an article that she wrote uh, for uh, the New Republic um, about uh, you know psychiatric suggestions uh, that have been going around about how to uh, to get through the COVID crisis and uh, the economic crisis self help self help hacks at the end of the world. Uh, welcome, Colette. Hi, thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Talk a little bit about what else you've been working on. Yeah, so um, my name's Colette Shade. I am a master's student at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. I'm studying to be a therapist, and I write about mental health and the kind of intersection of mental health and um, politics and capitalism. Yeah, and uh, and so of course that's what this uh, this New Republic article uh, is uh, is all about. Uh, so it, it kind of starts out talking about uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and uh, and this um, and this sort of weird mini genre of uh, of self help hacks uh, going to uh, to help people get through COVID and everything else. So can you uh, can you start us off a little bit with what you know what you were thinking about and what you were looking at when you started, when you got the idea for this article. So this is something I've been pissed off about for a long time, long before COVID. And I, but I, what happened was after COVID, I really started seeing an uptick in these, these pop psychology articles that suggested, well, if you just do this simple hack, that will fix your anxiety. And yes, it may have some impact. I mean, if I didn't believe that therapy worked, I wouldn't be going to school to become a therapist. But like, obviously, there are serious problems in our society that just, you know, um, putting on a nice dress shirt to feel more focused during a Zoom call or sticking your face in a bowl of water to, um, to calm down Um, when you're feeling anxious. I mean, these are all fine things, but they don't really solve the problem, which is that people are broke, they're stressed out, and they're terrified of the political, economic, and ecological conditions. 
Yeah, and and, I, and even if this this is something that's you know gone on uh, as you say for for long you know long before this, uh, and uh, and I, I guess I guess one way of of kind of trying to to enter into it uh, is all of these things might you know might help around around the edges you know that that like it, it's it's not terrible advice that if you've been telecommuting and you. Uh, never change out of the same t-shirt and pajama about it, but you know, pants for like the last, you know, for the last six months, you know, that, uh, that if you, if you like that, like, yeah, sure. Maybe if you like dress, like you're going to work, maybe that will make you feel a little bit better. Uh, but the, the basic reason why, uh, you know, they're like the, the need that's being answered uh, by all of these, uh, all of these articles, all these little tricks and hacks, uh, is is something that goes way way deeper than that. Like like they're like you you quote some insane statistics at the uh, at the beginning of of your article uh, about the number of people in recent months who've who've considered suicide. You know, like like this is this is the, there's there's something much deeper going on here. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I want to talk about too is that a lot of this really gets at how we understand mental health. Like the way we understand mental health, at least or the way we've talked about it in the past few decades, is as this very individualistic thing. Um, you know, it's all about brain chemistry, which it is, but everything is about chemistry. So, I mean, you know, you're, you're a philosopher, Ben. Like, you'll, you know, you, I'm sure you can tell me what kind of a, a sort of ridiculous argument it is to just say, oh, well, no need to look at that. That's just about chemistry. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, you know, and so I think... Um, but understanding it as that's the end of the story rather than, yes, it is about brain chemistry, but why are these changes happening? Why yeah. did the suicide rate start going up so much after 2006? I don't think everyone's brains just spontaneously changed after 2006. Yeah, right. So, of course, right, like you say, sure, everything that, that happens to, to somebody mentally, right, you know, you can, you can tell some sort of story about, uh, about brain chemistry because we, we have, uh, uh, you know, if you don't think that we, you know, that we're just like disembodied, you know, Cartesian souls that are, you know, that, that just happen to be linked to bodies, right, there's always going to be some sort of physical explanation, uh, but that doesn't really tell us much about why any particular one is going on in any particular case. And you give an example early in the article uh, about um, it's not even a, a COVID example, you know, but it's, it's just a general example about, uh, about diabetes yes. and nutrition that I think makes this point pretty vividly. So there's a concept from the field of public health called social determinants of health, which is basically about if you see a trend, like a big uptick or a big decline in some outcome, you basically want to say, hmm, now why is that happening? It's probably not spontaneous. There's probably some bigger reason. And so, for example, um, there are really, really high rates of diabetes in poor communities. And yes, that is chemical. Diabetes is a chemical condition. Um, but the reason that so many people in these communities are getting diabetes, it's not just chance or random. It's because um, when you're poor, you can't afford to really 
take care of your body, to buy healthy food. To, you don't have the time to cook healthy food. You don't have the time or the money to exercise. And so all of these, you know, now I'm talking about, to be clear, I'm talking about um, type 2 diabetes yeah. here. Um, you know, there are all of these um, things that just make it more likely that you're going to get this get this condition if you're poor. And so if you're looking at how do you help people who are in these communities that have these high rates of diabetes, what you really want to look at if you're taking a social determinants of health perspective is you want to say, okay, what's causing this? Oh, poverty. Okay. Well, maybe let's uh, give people more money. Let's give people, you know, so they can buy healthier food. Let's, um, you know, make sure that these neighborhoods aren't set up in such a way that there's no uh, healthy options. Um, but again, the money's the really important thing because they need to be able to buy it in the first place. You know, why are they working three jobs? Maybe they should have some time to like rest and exercise and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and so when you do start talking uh, in the article about about COVID, right? I mean, like a, you, you make the point that we shouldn't treat this as if it were just like almost, you know, it's almost like the, uh, the, the neurochemical explanation treating that as the beginning and end of it, right? We shouldn't treat it as if exactly the act, the, the, as if COVID uh, like the actual virus itself, right? You know, we're just directly causing all of the conditions uh, that, that are, that are leading people into such desperate straits right now. Right. It's, yeah. it's COVID is part of the background, but there are also a whole bunch of political decisions. Yeah. They're decisions. It's not like people are like, like I saw this ridiculous headline that was like 8 million Americans slipped into poverty because of COVID. First of all, they didn't slip. They were fucking pushed by our policies. And second of all, um, it wasn't because of COVID. It was because of our policies. Right, 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 right. <laughs> That uh, that there's there's nothing about like like so so I mean just just for example right I mean like one uh, lots of people one reason why so many people are as anxious and stressed out and depressed as they are in the first place uh, is because in America you know losing your job comes with all of these other things most obviously uh, losing your health insurance unless you're you know unless you happen to be married to somebody who is lucky enough to have their own. Uh, employer health insurance. So many, many millions of people uh, have uh, have lost uh, have lost their health insurance since the beginning of this. But that's not COVID took away their health insurance, right? Uh, they uh, that you know if we had national health insurance, nobody would have lost uh, exactly, their and people would be a lot less anxious too. You know, um, a lot of times. Um, well, I mean, the sort of the way that. The definition of anxiety essentially is having an irrational fear that interferes with your everyday life. But like these are very rational, rational fears. fears. Um, but the thing is, like if you've got a bunch of stress hormones, if you've got a bunch of cortisol going through your body all the time, that has all kinds of negative impacts on your physical and mental health. Like. Um, one of the reasons people are having such trouble concentrating is that cortisol makes it really hard to pay attention, to remember things. And so if you're stressed out because you're terrified that you're going to lose um, your job and your health insurance and your home, you have all of these kind of um, subsequent effects where you're 
losing things, forgetting your keys and things like that. And everyone's just so needlessly stressed out and there's such an easy fix for it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and even with, uh, even with the, the jobs, uh, you know, themselves, you know, there's, there's this thing that, uh, that, um, you know, conservatives in particular, you know, do a lot, uh, where they, they'll say it's not quite as bad as blaming the virus directly, you know, but they'll, uh, but they'll, they'll only go one step up from that. Right. And they'll say like, Oh, uh, COVID lockdowns, uh, cause, you know, cause people to, uh, to be, uh, to be impoverished, to be immiserated, you know, that they have a, uh, that, uh, you know, because this, this is so bad for, you know, for people financially, and even that's not really true. Right. The issue is not, is they are bad for finance, for people financially, because we've chosen not to support them, right. you know, and this is a bit, now I'm moving a bit out of my wheelhouse here, but it would be a public health measure to pay people to stay home. Because that would mean that they wouldn't feel, they wouldn't not feel, they wouldn't be financially compelled to go out into the workforce and, and expose themselves, expose their families, expose people that they're, you know, waiting tables for or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So, um, and you also do talk to maybe move a little bit back into that wheelhouse, uh, you know, Say okay, so there are lots of things like there's lots of larger public policy things that could that can be done here that would dramatically alleviate a lot of the uh, or take away a lot of the sources of the uh, of the the anxiety and depression you know that lots of people have have been experiencing or you know maybe we don't even want to call it anxiety because you know it's uh, given the definition that you just gave me right but the the stress and unhappiness. Uh, that uh, that we we could uh, that we could give everybody you know health insurance uh, you know we we could financially support people you know support everybody uh, so they could you know make decisions about what they were going to do as far as work you know uh, in the uh, in the pandemic without this financial pressure uh, but it is you know presumably you know even if you know even if we did all of that right at least until such time that we either got like a vaccine or better antiviral drugs or at least did like a serious enough lockdown that, that we could, you know, set up, use it to set up some sort of test and trace system to let people go back out after that. Um, you know, that while we're aiming for that, it is still like, like the germ of truth in, you know, in blaming it directly on the virus or at least on the lockdowns is that, uh, is that just having a lot less human contact uh, than, than you'd have, than you'd have normally is very, very bad. Uh, you know, for people's for people's mental health, you know, even, in the, even the best of financial circumstances, um, and and so so one thing you you suggest towards the end of the article is that we we could uh, we could do something about this, uh, which is that um, which is that we could actually just have a public program to hire lots and lots of counselors to help yeah. people through this. Yeah, and that and you know, I mean, this would be ideally also part of broader programs of public employment, such as the Green New Deal. Um, but to talk specifically about uh, a kind of COVID response, um, I mean, people are grieving. I mean, people have lost, um, you know, members of their family, spouses, children, friends, neighbors, you name it. And people, um, you know, it's really, really, really tough to to get even off of a wait list to see a therapist because they're just 
the need far outweighs the number of providers. Um, you know, and then of course there's the financial component, which is a whole other issue, which is basically that um, the way things are set up, people really can't afford, most people can't afford mental health care, or they're very, very limited in the providers and types of services that are covered under their insurance program, if they even have insurance. Yeah, and, and even and even if you are lucky enough to uh, to have insurance, uh, and and you're even luckier, and 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 it covers uh, what you need, uh, at least you know. I mean, God, even without bringing therapy really into it, even just uh, like even if you just are on psychiatric medication that you've been on for ten years, and you just you just need that uh, that that re prescription every uh, every three months. Uh, that itself uh, becomes incredibly stressful and upsetting because of the private health insurance. Right. It's crazy because it's like, um, you know, I love this message of like, yeah, go get help. Okay. Stay on a wait list for eight months while you're having a psychiatric emergency. Right. <laughs> and then also, okay, you get off of the wait list and then, you know, your, your insurance doesn't cover it or you have to get, um, you know, you, it's, it's like uh, hundreds of dollars, uh, uh, your copay to see a psychiatrist. Yeah. I mean, it's just all kinds of different problems here. Yeah, and, and even if and even if your insurance does cover, right? I mean, yes. Like, even even if you're in the best possible situation, uh, which is you know, which is to say that uh, you have a decent job, your insurance, you know, covers the medication that you need. There's the doctor in plan who can write that script every few months. Uh, uh, then if you do things like, uh, change jobs, uh, even if you're going straight from one job to the other, yeah. uh, or if you, or if you stick with the same job, but, uh, you know, hypothetically, I'm just pulling this example out of thin air, the university that you work for, uh, you know, decides to, uh, to change, you know, the, uh, the you know, which insurance plan that you're on. And, uh, yeah. Then what that means is that you say, okay, well, the, the doctor who used to write that every three months is no longer in plan. So now right. you have to do some research. You have to find the new one who's in plan. You have to get that first appointment, which is going to take way longer uh, because you're now a yeah. new patient again. Yeah. Uh, then, you know, there might be a second appointment before yeah. you're actually writing anything. Yeah. Uh, and meanwhile, you're parceling out the pills. You say, yeah. okay, how many pills, how many days? And that's the situation of like middle-class people with insurance <laughs> that actually provides what they need. Never mind people who are just completely left out in the cold on this stuff. Right. I mean, it's just like, I mean, and I'm actually writing another article for The Nation right now about, um, this is not only about COVID, this is, uh, sort of broader focus, and it's about mental health awareness initiatives. And I got a bunch of, um, you know, I talked to, I put out a call um, on Facebook, on Twitter, different places, um, uh, basically for stories about people, um, basically how people felt about mental health awareness initiatives and how they felt that, um, essentially the political and economic conditions had impacted their own mental health. And I mean, I just got, I was just completely overwhelmed by the number of people who got in touch with me saying things like, um, yeah, you know, I was just on this wait list or, you know, I can't get 
care or, you know, it just feels like there's one guy who said, yeah, you know, awareness, it, it feels like such an insult to me. You know, it's like there's this, um, you know, it's like swatting at flies while there's a 20-foot pile of shit behind you. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, and, uh, and certainly, you know, like, even when there is some public provision, you know, like there's like a county mental health something. They're incredibly overwhelmed. I mean, that is just yeah. like, I mean, it's just the amount of providers to people who need the services is just totally out of whack. And what we need to do, which again, this is not particular to the field of mental health. This is, you know, the same with like the field of uh, public education. Like we need to basically hire a huge amount of people because that would both improve services, but it would also be a jobs program that would stimulate the economy right. and people would just be happier and healthier if they knew that they could get a meaningful job. Yeah, you could actually, you could actually get in to see somebody at the county mental health thing uh, before, like, oftentimes these things are so overwhelmed that when you talk to them on the phone, they basically they basically tell you, "Hey, if you actually have a breakdown, right, then you know you can come in." Right. right? But uh, but if you're just trying to avoid that, you know, then you know whatever. Good luck. Maybe if you can hold off for you know two months, uh, then uh, then then we'll see you then. Yeah. Uh, so so I was curious also about this this jobs program aspect because this is something that, that you could speak to that I don't know. I mean, like. Like what, like, like what is the kind of situation there? Like, like, is there like a, is there a massive pool of, of people who, who would fill these jobs, you know, who, who are currently unemployed or like. So I, so this is okay. Again, I don't want to say anything that I don't know anything about. Um, I don't know. I have not done a ton of research into this. Um, anecdotally, it seems like, um, the biggest issue is, I mean, there are a couple things. Um, one is basically that um, it's more lucrative to um, basically go into private practice and um, not take insurance or do sliding right. scale for various reasons. Um, I mean, that's probably what I'm going to end up doing um, after right, I, you know, graduate and 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 get a certain license and things like that. Yeah. But which, 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 by the way, we left out of our litany of horrors at the private insurance uh, uh, in, in just industry before that, right? On, on top of all of that, right? If, if you have Medicaid, uh, good yes. luck getting into a therapist and who will take it. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, what was I saying here? Basically, uh, there's a big problem where there's just not a financial incentive to um, provide care to people who can't just pay out of pocket. Um, And so if there were a public jobs program, what that would do was that that would create, in my opinion, it would create an incentive for serving, uh, you know, a broader right. swath of people. Right. So, uh, so in addition to like employing anybody who does have that training and just doesn't yeah. have a job right now, uh, and also, you know, giving like people who, who might, uh, be considering 
going into those programs, uh, you know, more confidence that they'll get a job when they, they get out, right? So, so you'd have more people in the pipeline that way. It would yeah. also uh, let lots of people who, who, might be, uh, who, who might actually be much happier if they could see a broader range of people, but, you know, but, but who, who don't think they can justify the financial calculation, a way to do that. Yeah, I mean, basically. And then the other thing is, I mean, I'm just a big advocate of jobs programs in general. Mm -hmm. So like, I mean, like, I'm a huge fan of the WPA. Mm -hmm. Like, I love that we just paid out of work writers to do travel guides. We're just like, okay, you're a writer, cool. You're a painter, you're a photographer, cool. We'll pay you. Because that is... um, I guess my, my point is that like my sort of broader point here is that like creating an economy where people can um, know that they can support themselves doing work that's meaningful for themselves and for their communities. Um, that's actually a mental health program because my kind of overarching thesis with a lot of the things that I write is that we, we have to kind of redefine what we think of as um, mental health policy because a lot of the things that are like, for instance, a lot of the things that are making us so upset kind of fall outside the realm of what is traditionally talked about even on the left and among progressives as mental health policy. Yeah. So, so let's, let's get into that a little bit in the last few minutes we've got here. They, uh, so, uh, a lot of you know, like you, you could easily see how how somebody you know who came from a different perspective about this might say, okay, look, um, you know, maybe a jobs program and Medicare for all, and you know, all of the other things on that kind of social democratic wish list, you know, maybe you know, maybe those would be nice things, uh, but uh, but it's you know, what do those really have to do with the mental health health stuff you're you're talking about? Uh, you know, you're like, this is, this is a stretch, you know, like you're, you're trying to, you know, like uh, you've, you've got this separate political agenda and, and you're trying to, to present it as, as having something to, to do with mental health. But, uh, uh, but, but really um, I'm, I'm going to try to do a non-caricature version of this, right? You know, so, so I, I won't say really people just need to learn the ice water trick and, you know, but like, uh, but, uh, but, um, but people who, um uh, but you know there are always going to be I don't know economic problems and in, in, in you know in, in people's lives you know mental health is just is just a separate thing from that. How would you like try to start to you know to make the connections for somebody who kind of who who didn't start out seeing this the way that you do? Well, nothing's really separate from anything. First of all, I mean health is not health itself is inextricable from our surroundings and from politics. And mental health is as well. And so we need to think about um, basically how humans are interacting with the world around us. Um, Are we getting all of this input that makes us really stressed out and alienated and lonely or, you know, forces us into these positions where we're, we're uncomfortable or isolated or whatever, or are we feeling plugged in? Are we feeling safe and protected? Do we feel like we have what we need? And there's been a lot of good research done on this. Um, So one book that I like to recommend to people who are interested in this topic is called The Inner Level. It's by two British epidemiologists named um, Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson. 
And it basically, they, they crunched a lot of numbers. Um, and what they basically found was that more equal societies have better mental health outcomes um, in a number of different ways. Um, and so them's the facts, you know? <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Facts don't care about your feelings, but Colette does. Uh, so, uh, so thank you. Uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on, for talking about this. Uh, everybody should, uh, should, should read this article. There's a point early on where you say that, um, maybe part of the reason why this analysis, you know, isn't more widely presented is that it doesn't make for very clickable articles. Uh, but, uh, but this is a, this is a entertaining, uh, and, and, and informative piece. So, uh, so please go out and read that. Uh, anything else you want to plug before you uh, leave? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm working on this article for the nation that's about mental health awareness, um, uh, initiatives. Um, it's, you know, to come. Um, and then I've also got another article that I'm working on, um, for the new Republic. Um, that's about, um, this weird trend of encouraging people to cry at work. Wait, what? <laughs> oh, you oh, haven't okay. heard. I, I, I missed this. You have to, <laughs> you have to tell me about well, this. Um, clearly you didn't receive the Instagram ad, uh, advertising a $40 t-shirt that says I cry at work. And you missed the dozens of New York Times, Harvard Business Review, and Bloomberg articles about um, why crying at work is good, what to do if your employees cry at work, and, you know, things like that. <laughs> okay. I, I, okay, just real quick. Why, why is crying at work supposed to be good now? <laughs> I mean, from reading these articles, what I've basically gleaned is that it's it's um, supposed to be kind of liberatory and you're supposed to feel like, oh, well, this is a safe place. I can cry in my office. But they never ask why you're crying in the first place. To me, if someone's crying at work, that tells me that there's a serious problem at work. And I'm arguing that basically we need to create workplaces where people don't cry as much. And um, the way we do that is by empowering workers and democratizing the workplaces. Yeah. I, I mean, if, if you have a society uh, where you've, uh, you've reached the point uh, that, uh, that, that your message to, uh, to people who are in such bad places in their work situation uh, that they're regularly bursting into tears at the workplace is uh, is that is don't feel bad about doing that. <laughs> like there might like well, but see see this actually ties into my my sort of broader argument about like awareness is that if if awareness is a jumping off point to go um, either get help if that's possible and or make significant social changes that's awesome. But like, if it's just like, okay, everyone be aware, Hey, it's okay to have depression. It's like, okay, well maybe we want to think about addressing some of the um, things, the factors that are contributing to it. Yeah. Right. I mean, like it, it, it almost, it almost seems like if, uh, if you lived in a society where I don't know, everybody worked at factories and the factories were so unsafe uh, that it was super common that people would have uh, would lose limbs in industrial accidents, and the solution was a bunch of New York Times think pieces about how 
uh, you shouldn't feel ashamed that you have fewer limbs than other people do. This is literally what they're arguing. It it drives me absolutely insane. I just feel, I just, I... (laughs) That's amazing. All right, well, definitely look forward to seeing that in the nation when it comes out. Uh, Please do come back to talk about it when it does. Thank you so much. All right, thanks, Ben. All right, thank you so much, Glitt. Bye. Bye. I'm now joined by hip-hop artist, MC, and activist, uh, Napoleon De Legend. Uh, love that name. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, brother. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so I, I, you know, I thought this would be a good time to, um, uh, to have you on since, since we normally do this, this music segment at the end of the show with uh, uh, David Griscom, but it's his... You know, it's his birthday today, so he's uh, um, so he is uh, he's not available, and and I thought that would this would be a great time to chat with you. And you you sent me um, you sent me some of your music to listen to, which which I've done you know over the course of the week. But also, I, I guess since this is actually uh, the first time you and I have ever talked since um, I mean I've obviously you know seen you on on the Michael Brooks show you know. Uh, uh, last year and you know at other times uh but uh but but we've never we've never actually chatted so and uh and and there may be people who are who are watching this uh on youtube or listening to his podcast uh who who aren't really familiar with with you and uh and everything that you do right so i mean like maybe let's let's just kind of start out there right so like you want to say a few words about like you know your background and how you started doing what you're doing now yeah uh basically um I was born in Paris, France, and uh, my family moved to uh, America when I was young, around four years old, around the D.C., Maryland area. We were, like, kind of moving around there. And uh, originally, both of my parents are from the Comoros Islands, which is a small place in Lower East Africa that a lot of people in America haven't heard about, but a very interesting place. And uh, basically, like, you know, immigrant family, we grew up around D.C. Um, I grew up in... I lived in D.C., Montgomery County, Prince George County, and just started doing music. And um, about probably like eight years ago, I moved to Brooklyn to pursue music even further because when I was in D.C. and everything, like my, my parents ended up splitting up and they both left. My mother went to France. My dad went to the Ivory Coast. And I, I decided to stay. I was like around 16. And uh, just pursuing music, doing what I do. And uh, I I wanted to take it to New York because my career was going nowhere back in Maryland and D.C. Like it was it was not moving. So and and when I got to New York, it it it, it's true. It proved to be a good decision for me because I started getting the buzz. I started working with uh, artists known in the hip hop game and everything like that. And I started touring, you know, release of albums and projects and things like that and got me to where to where I'm at I'm, I'm here today you know just making music and um yeah you put out I, a lot in the last couple of years uh yeah I'm, I'm 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 up there as far as people putting out a lot of music when it comes to like rappers in the in the in, the, in, in that type of rap scene I put out I think 24 projects probably in the last three four years something like that so I I, I do i I do a lot of music. I don't have any restrictions. I'm not signed to any labels. I do individual label deals, but I'm independent as an artist. 
so I can make music. I control my workflow, on my own boss. So I, I put out what I want to put out and it, it's proven to, uh, I mean, the people that follow my music enjoy that because they know that I'm, they're, they feel like they're following my journey. And you can see the evolution from when I first got to New York, my first album was Awakening. It had Sean Price, Ray, Raekwon from Wu-Tang Clan. And then I just kept dropping albums and you can see where my careers went from there. Nice. So uh, obviously, like I kind of alluded to, to a minute ago, right? I mean, like you first came on my radar, you know, because I saw you on uh on tmbs uh how did you uh like how did you meet uh, michael brooks how did that happen yeah uh great question like i think it was i'm not good with dates but i think around 2018 Mm -hmm. my youtube algorithm caught like some videos from majority report and i think the first video i seen was they were talking about joe rogan and him being kind of a conduit to the alt-right and they were having a conversation about that and um just start listening to the majority report. So I started becoming a fan of Sam Cedar and now I started becoming a fan of Michael Brooks. I'm like, yo, this guy knows what he's doing. Didn't even know about the Michael Brooks show and started following him online. And we started getting back and forth chats with each other. And he was telling me how much he appreciated my music and things like that. So he, I think he was kind of him being a big hip hop fan. He, he kind of was always asking me about video shoots, wanted to be part of that, wanted to see how it went down. And now and we were talking about politics and we finally realized we were both in Brooklyn. So we met up, you know, had, had a coffee or whatever. And then we just had a just great conversation. And right then and there, he invited me to the show. He was like, I want you on the show. Then probably a month or two later, I was on TMBS for the first time. And you had a segment on it too. So we, we got the chat live without really chatting together. No, that, that's, that's right. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, because there was a while uh, before the pandemic, you know, obviously changed the format of the show. Right. When, um, you know, I do the debunks at the beginning of the, uh, the TMBS post game. And, um, and oftentimes, you know, whoever was the guest, you know, on the main show would, would stick around for, for the post games. So there was definitely right. at least once, I think maybe a couple of times when, uh, when we, that was uh, twice because we, we did it this year too. Like the last show in the studio, I was in it. I, it was in March, and and you had a debunk on that. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So uh, so yeah, there 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 have been there have been twice that you know that that we we talked a little bit. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about that because you know because I would I would kind of present it. You know, there'd be the uh, here's uh, you know here's something ridiculous that Ben Shapiro or whoever said, you know, right. I would I'd break it down a little bit with Michael. And then, you know, he would kick it over to, uh, to you and, you know, and, and you'd, uh, and you'd weigh in on it a little bit. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really good to actually, you know, get to, uh, get to talk to you, you know, a little bit more directly. Um, so how about the, uh, you know, like we talked a little bit about the, uh, the background, you know, like, you know, your background, how you started doing what you're doing musically. Um, but, uh, but how about the, like the activist, you know, part of that, like, uh, well, like what's, yeah. Well, mostly it's, it's, I do things in like in the community. Like I, I was, I started getting involved when I, when, when I moved to Brooklyn, it allowed me to do more things where I would be asked mostly through my artistry to like do hip hop workshops or summer camps, youth summer camps. And they would have workshops for, to, to teach people how to produce, how to rap and things like that. So me, it's more community based, you know, like I, I, certain art organizations will ask me to either 
do a workshop or do a show for Flint, Michigan. We had a show at SOBs where we were raising money for, for them to have clean water and things like that. So I, I did a lot of artist teaching things where I would do workshops in uh, Brownsville for certain schools, high schools, middle schools in the Bronx. I would go to Rikers Island too. And we had like a curriculum where it was like hip hop, teaching people uh, like the, 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 the young inmates at, at, at Rikers we we just take two hours where they 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 would be able to do music and not think about the fact that they're like in in jail right now. You know what I'm saying? So it was mostly I wouldn't I would say not really political, but mostly just being part of the community and see what's going on. There's some organization about stopping the violence, like in Best Eye Brooklyn. I would I would work with them and do certain things, certain activities. So mostly me is mostly tied to the community more than anything. Yeah, although even though even though something like that prison program, I mean, it's not directly political, but you're you're still, um, you know, you're still meeting you know meeting people and 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 talking to them who are on the receiving end of um, of the the carceral state. You know that uh, so so I mean, you're you definitely getting a, a front row seat to um, you know to that problem, right? I mean, like what what's what was what was that like? I mean, like this because uh, you know like. I mean, when, when you would, I mean, obviously you're, you're doing it in the conversation, you know, context of talking about music, you're giving them an escape from it. So you're not, you know, you're not necessarily talking to them about the horrible stuff they're going through. Right. But right. like, but, but still, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like what was, um, you know, like, 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 did that make you feel like think any differently about that stuff? You know, meeting all those people. Uh, yeah, it did. I mean, I, I've had, I've had, quite a few friends that have been to jail, even when I, when I, when I used to live in Maryland and, and, and DC. So sometimes I used to visit them. So, um, thankfully I, I've never, I, I've never been in jail myself, but that was the first time where you're going through this. You have, you're going in, into the inside of the jail. You're on the other side of the window, so to speak. So one, you see the process it takes, like how long it takes, like just to, that was my first thing. Like, wow, this is like a whole process to get in there. You got to go to Queens. You got to take a bus that'll take you into Rikers Island, which is an island like you see the LaGuardia Airport in front of it, uh. and they they bring dogs to, to do this. And so it takes a long time before you're actually in front of you know the, the the youth. And it opened my eyes. One of the things that really shocked me is the race ratio in there. Mm. It's like. I could count on my hand. And I like every time we go, it would be like we had like two different we go to two different parts. I forget the names of them of the uh, of the jail. And um so it'd be different groups. It'd be like 20 to 30 uh people each group. I could count on my hand like how many like white people, like white inmates, like one or two the whole time. It's all like black and Hispanic. So I'm like are those the only like youth offenders in the whole like New York City? It right. just kind of baffled me that it was like, like y'all you see is mostly black and and Latin Latin kids there. That 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 kind of struck me. Two is just that yo the kids like when when you go when I when I do these workshops in high schools right like I go to Brooklyn Academy in Brownsville or I go to Ascend Middle School in uh, in Brownsville too actually. Mm. It's almost the same thing. These are kids. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't feel any type of different, apart from the fact that there's a security guard right there or, a pro or whatever, a, pro, a CO, or, and, and we're in a locked environment and we went through all this stuff and they're wearing uniforms. 
their their kids is they're no different. Like they 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 have a good time. They they have aspirations. They have dreams. Um, it's like it, it's almost then, then when I go back to the high schools, I'm like I. It's like we have such a stigma that we have through stereotypes, through watching things on TV, shows, movies, where we we expect to for them to be like little monsters or something like that. And and um, it's not it's not at all the case. They're just young kids that probably were at the wrong place at the wrong time or made mistakes or around a neighborhood where there's a lot of gangs and crimes and they just they just got stuck doing it. It's like I don't feel like none of them were like hopeless cases and stuff right. like that. Because when you start talking to them, you hear their story. You hear. I remember this one kid. He was from Philly, and like he's like yo I. I'm the man of the family. And he's like, he was like 20 or 19 years old, really young. He's like, I had to, I had to make money because I had to take care of my two sisters. My mom can't do it. And this and that. And when you hear him talk, it makes sense. He doesn't seem unreasonable at all. You know, even though, yeah, he's selling narcotics or doing whatever he's doing, but you, you understand it more when it's right there where it's easy to be like, these people are criminals. These people are doing bad things. And, and to me, it's like I, I see more of kids trying to do the best with what they were given. Yeah. Yeah, right. And there's certainly, yeah, I mean, what they've been given is is so much different from from so many other people who, who might, um, you know, like who might not have the perspective that you that you just laid out. Right. You know, that. Uh, you know, that they're making, uh, you know, they're making choices and circumstances that, you know, that, that some of us are lucky enough never to have, you know, have had to think about. Right. Um, which, which really, uh, you know, which, which really makes you think about like how obscene it is that we have this, uh, you know, this, this prison system, uh, that is like the last thing that, that it really serves, you know, is, is actually, um, you know, reintegrating people into society in ways that like, they're not going to have to, to face those choices again. Right. You know, that they, that like in, in a lot of ways, it's actually, um, if your goal, right. Was, right. was to make sure nobody was rehabilitated and that you, you just had a permanent criminal class. In a lot of ways, this is what you would do, right. You'd, you'd say you'd lock people up, um, who for, for committing like relatively minor crimes, you'd lock them up with people who sometimes are much more dangerous than they are. So, you know, they have to, to learn new criminal skills and then, uh, and then you get them out with a criminal record that would stop them from getting like non-criminal employment in the future. Right. And, and, and there's a lot of like gang gangs there and there's rival gangs. So it creates, it creates this, this tension in the air too, which keeps like, you know, keeps them in the vicious cycle. And on top of that, it made me think about, uh, when I, when I watched the Khalif Browder story, I don't know if you heard about uh, Khalif mm-hmm. Browder. No. So he's he he was from the Bronx, a young man. I don't know how old he was, but he was like 17. He got so-called accused of stealing a backpack, which he denies. Right. Uh, so and he couldn't afford bail, so he went to Rikers Isle, and they they documented a lot of things. He would get into a lot of fights trying to defend himself and trying to you know be you know be tough because you have to be tough in those environments. And um, he didn't just didn't have the money for bail. So he ended up for a backpack staying in jail for three years because he couldn't afford bail. There was a few times where he was stubborn, probably rightfully so. I don't know. I'm not in his position. I wasn't in his position. But the, the judge would tell him, you could just plead guilty and you'll be out tomorrow. And But he's like, I'm not going to plead guilty out of principle because I didn't do this. So he was like that stubborn where it, it, it got him to do three years. 
And uh, unfortunately, when he got out, there was a whole story about him. He went on TV shows and everything like that. And I think like a few years later, he committed suicide because of the trauma that that, that went through his whole, he, he went through hell during those three years in jail. So there's a lot of these. I think also that's why you don't see a lot of other races, like p- people that are more affluent because they just pay bail and then they just go home. You know, these these people obviously can't 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 afford it. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I uh, yeah, I mean, I actually did once, uh, you know, when I was when I was living in Miami, uh, I, I did. um uh, I did end up spending uh, about a day in jail because I'd because uh, of like a uh, like because of a traffic thing that 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 like I'd, I'd like get away from you know like I hadn't uh, I hadn't paid off and it just like the the county jail in Miami Dade is is so um, like the system is so ridiculous that even though I did have a friend who you know showed up right away to pay my bail it still took like almost a day to get out you know so right. I, I think as you were. Um, as you were saying that, right. I was just thinking about like spending three years. Uh, with that, and, that's, and, oh, and I'm, I'm going to add a, a year and a half. He spent on solitary confinement and he was that young. So that, I think that's what really psychological. Yeah, which is, which in most first world countries is considered a form of torture. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it, that, that type of things, ha- these type of things happen, man. And we, we have to, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. I can hear you. Uh, these type of things happen, and and it's 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 a problem. It's a failure, and we're we're failing all these this this whole this whole segment of of, of young young kids. Yeah. Oh, so uh, so I, I do want to um, I do want to switch gears uh, in uh, in the last couple of minutes we've uh, we've got left since uh, since I do want to give you a chance to uh, to talk uh, a little bit more about uh, some of what you've been doing. So. Uh, so for people who, who may be watching or listening, you know, who, who aren't familiar with you, who, who, uh, who haven't, uh, who haven't listened to your stuff, um, like what, what would be, uh, what would be a good place to start out? Like, what would you recommend that people download first? Well, it's, it's always a tough question. I mean, I would say the last project I put out is called Dragon Ball G, which it's, 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 it's I'm sampling from a Japanese cartoon because I like the music. And you would think from first impression that it's like some Nickelodeon zany cartoony stuff, but it's real. It's real music. It's just the music sample from that that Japanese anime. So I would go there because it's it's my last project. You can see where I'm at mentally and everything like that. But I also tell people to to check out my uh, Still This Mixtape series, which are four different mixtapes that I put out from 2016 to 2018 where I, I kind of took like my favorite beats here and there and just made songs just to kind of show the world, like this is how I want myself to sound like. This is how I want to present myself. And I talk a lot about my personal life. I talk, I give a lot of social commentary and things of that nature. And I, I think that's a good introduction to what I do, but it's a long journey. It takes a while to like kind of figure out the labyrinth that I created for myself. Nice. What, uh, what are you working on now? Well, right now I'm working on several projects. I'm working on like eight projects. I, wow. I, I'm, a, I'm an overdoer when it comes to that. But I, I just, like, I love this music stuff. You know what I mean? The fact that I could just wake up in the morning and just do that. I don't have to punch the clock or everything. Something that I know, you know, I've had jobs and stuff like that. But it's like, I feel like it's such a, a, a privilege to do that. I, I make music every day. So that's why I keep having music. And, and I'm in some sort of zone where I'm very inspired all the time. And I'm working on, um, notably, I'm working on a, a producer called Amerigo Gazaway, 
mm-hmm. uh, who who does uh, he's known for doing mashup mixtapes. Like he'll take Nina Simone and Lauren Hill and just put them together. He'll take James Brown and Notorious Big and put them together. Fila Kuti, De La Soul, Fila Soul. We're working on his first uh, project he produced with a rapper. Uh, so we're working on that. So, so that should come out sometime next year. And I'm also working with a producer from um, a very, very, um, probably the most famous French rap group called I Am. There's a rapper and producer called Akenaton. And he reached out to me, invited me on his album during COVID time because their tour was canceled due to COVID in March. And he put out an album that I'm on. And then he asked me to produce as a beat maker projects for me. So me and him are going to release like two or three EPs and, and, and probably sometime next year. Nice. Thank you so much for coming on. This is fantastic. Thank you, Ben. It, it, it's a pleasure. And I, I'm a fan of yours, man. You always give us the, the right way of how to tackle arguments and all this rhetoric stuff that they try to like put smoke in your eyes with, you know? I really appreciate that. Thank you. Take care. You too. All right. That was uh, rapper, MC, and activist uh, Napoleon DeLegend. Uh, before that, uh, talked to uh, Colette Shade about her excellent uh, New Republic article, uh, Self Help Hacks at the End of the World. Uh, before that, uh, talked to uh, Jeff Cohen from Roots Action. And of course, uh, this show's favorite old lefty from way back, uh, David Feldman. Uh, just want to let you guys know about a few things that are coming up before I sign off for today. Uh, so I, um, this last week, uh, I did a debate about the election um, with uh, Nico House uh, on the Surf's uh, Twitch stream. Uh, I think you can get the VOD there, but I'm uh, I'm going to put it out on the Give Them an Argument uh, YouTube channel probably on Tuesday night. Uh, get a premiere it there, uh, and also um, I have I recorded uh, last this last week a conversation with Freddie DeBoer, returning champ. Uh, he was on one of the uh, very early. Uh, episodes of the show talking about his excellent book, uh, The Cult of Smart, which is really like savage and rigorous socialist critique of meritocracy. Um, but this conversation that I had with him uh, was not about that. It, in fact, it was not about anything political at all. Um, it's uh, I'm going to put it out uh, probably on Friday as a little Halloween bonus episode. Uh, so uh, Freddie, in addition to his political writing, he also does a movie blog, uh, and I'd, he'd done one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films, which uh, I was really interested to read because um, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, of those movies, you know, especially the first one, of course. Uh, but uh, but I, I enjoy all of those, so I had a uh, conversation with him about that. So that's. Uh, Freddy on Freddy. I'll put that out just before Halloween. Uh, and uh, the last thing that, uh, that I want to mention uh, before talking about the show coming up next week. Um, actually, sorry, two, uh, two last things I want to mention. So I did a uh, YouTube live stream uh, on Thursday uh, with uh, Daniel Bestner, uh, Gene Bajalon, and Kuba Wierinski uh, about what uh, we'd actually want a democratic socialist foreign policy to look like. It's, it's easy and correct to say that U.S. imperialism is bad. It's much uh, trickier and more interesting to, to try to think seriously about how we would actually want the United States to relate to other countries if the left ever came to power. So that's what we tried to grapple with there. 
Um, and on a completely different note, uh, I'm very excited to say that starting in November, uh, I am going to be doing a monthly uh, bonus episode recapping uh, my favorite TV show, The Sopranos, uh, with uh, three people. Uh, so uh, my, my three co-hosts for those monthly bonus episodes are going to be Nando Vila, uh, Big Wise, uh, both of whom, of course, have been guests on the show in the past. Uh, and finally, uh, Mike Racine from The Sit Down. Uh, so uh, the first, uh, the November episode of that, it's going to be once a month. Uh, the November episode, uh, we're going to be recording on the 10th. Uh, that's going to cover the first two episodes, episode one, The Sopranos, and uh, episode two, 46 Long. So that should be really good. Really looking forward to that. Uh, the episode next week, episode 12, uh, is uh, is going to uh, to feature um, a, a short conversation at the beginning with Greg Belvedere about worker cooperatives, uh, which of course is is very central to uh, the the politics uh, of of this show. Thinking about how we can get beyond capitalism, have workers control the means of production. Uh, uh, but then, of course, since that episode is going to be um, recording the Saturday before the election and dropping uh, the day before the election. Uh, that is the main thing we're going to talk about. So I'm going to do a panel on the election uh, with Katie Halper, Luke Savage, uh, and, uh, and Matt Leck. Uh, and of course, the birthday boy, David Griscom, is going to be back uh, for another segment of Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Um, I've been really excited to see how the, the show has, has been growing over the course of the three months that, that it's been on. Um, you know, we're, we're getting close to, uh, to 300 patrons, uh, probably going to have to, uh, to come, um, you know, I should probably start thinking soon about, uh, about something to do once we hit 500, uh, you know, some equivalent to, um, you know, when, when I hit a hundred patrons, I said, I do the literary equivalent of eating a bowl of spiders and read Glenn Beck's book about socialism, which I did. I uh, co-wrote a review of that with uh, Nathan Robinson after. You can read in uh, the new print issue of Current Affairs. Uh, but, uh, but meanwhile, um, you know, do have to come up with something similar to do uh, for uh, once we get up to, uh, to 500 uh, patrons. Um, so, so let me know if you have any suggestion, uh, but if you can swing it, please do consider becoming a patron. I understand if you can't, if the, you know, you do not have the five bucks a month, trust me, I've been there. Uh, you know, I was an adjunct for years. Um, so, uh, but if you do, uh, for the monthly cost of a milkshake at the fifties nostalgia diner and uh, Pulp Fiction, uh, you get, uh, early access to, uh, to every episode, um, uh, Always share a unlisted uh, YouTube live stream so you can you can be part of the studio audience. And if you want to throw in a question uh, to uh, to the chat, I can uh, I can answer it during the uh, during the stream. Uh, you also get regularly scheduled um, uh, Discord office hours, uh, group voice chats, you know, with me and with the other patrons. Uh, so we were doing those once a week for a while. Didn't uh, there were a couple things that came up in the last couple of weeks and I had tons of back pain last week. So I was trying to. Uh, stay out of the chair in front of the computer as much as at all possible, but we're going to be back to those uh, next week. Uh, and uh, I, uh, you also sometimes get uh, bonus essays, and uh, we're going to start doing some uh, some patron exclusive bonus episodes that will get unlocked eventually. Uh, but you get them first. Uh, but of course, you know we shouldn't talk about this like it's a subscription service. This is 
those are all gestures of gratitude for those of you who uh, who are supporting the show, uh, so that you know we can I hope uh, get to the point where everybody's involved in it uh, can uh, can can make a living wage uh, doing that. You know, most of the people who help me put this out uh, every week, uh, you know, unfortunately are not getting you know paid yet. Uh, you know, and I definitely want to change that. Uh, so if you support this, if you if you if you like what we're doing here, please do consider becoming a patron. If you can't. Uh, or even if you can, uh, please also, I, I, I know this is the most stock thing to say at the, at the end of a podcast ever, but uh, please like and subscribe on YouTube. Please rate and review us wherever you get podcasts. Those things do matter. Uh, those do help. Those do grow the show. Uh, so I'm really excited about this. Thank you, everybody who's been supporting this. Uh, I will see you next week. Left is best. Left is best.